So a few weeks ago, I was right here at the ICC in Sydney at the AIDH Digital Health Summit. We're exploring digital health advances in hospital and primary and community care from the front line to the back office in metro, rural and regional New South Wales. So in this episode today, you'll hear the conversations I had with speakers who presented at the AIDH Digital Health Summit. Plus, I got to get out during the networking sessions and speak to attendees to find out what they learned from the sessions and what excites them about the future of digital health. So if you enjoyed this one, you're going to love MedInfo23, presented by AIDH, happening in Sydney this year, and it's the 19th World Congress of Medical and Health Informatics. So there's going to be lots and lots of digital health leaders and clinicians from around the world attending MedInfo later this year. For more information on that one, check the comments below. But right now, here are the conversations I had with speakers at the AIDH Digital Health Summit in Sydney in 2022. Collaboration starts with the conversation. Team Health Tech, let's make it happen. This is Talking Health Tech with me, Peter Birch, featuring content and community about technology in healthcare. Oh, it's been a great day. Caught up with some old colleagues, yourself included, <laughs> and uh, sat in on a couple of the, the chats as well. So nice. learning about um, some of the new stuff that's coming out. Connecting the disconnected ecosystem. It's a mess, right? It's a huge spider web. I think that's the opportunity. It'll provide greater information, more informed patients. It will also streamline and, and drive productivity for clinicians. Recent session actually was the closing plenary with the students from Loretto and Normanhurst. That was really inspiring. That was probably one of the most heartwarming moments I've had, seeing young students, year 10 students being brought in a proper partnership between eHealth and like, you know, a school association and a school system. Everyone works so hard in this sector and sometimes it's not just that we share common passions but we share common frustrations too at how hard it can be and how isolating it can feel even though you're a part of a massive tribe of people. I'm Dr. Jen Bickle-Findlay and currently I'm a healthcare consultant and I am in the educational area around um, writing health informatics and digital health um, content for courses. Got it. And speaking of courses for health informatics, keen to learn a bit more about CHIA. For those that don't know about the Certificate of Health Informatics Australasia, Talk to me about it, what is it? Okay, so CHIA stands for Certified Health Informatician Australasia. It's a credentialing um, program, so it's not an educational course, it's a credential. And it's to give recognition to people who work in the area of health informatics, but uh, haven't got a degree or a master's, but have many, many years of experience and uh, lots of knowledge and this is a professional recognition of that knowledge and skills that they have. And what kind of things are covered within the program? It has uh, six domains in our uh, competency framework so all the program uh, stems from that competency framework so that's health sciences, uh, information science, uh, information technology, um, social and behavioural sciences, management and leadership, and then the biggest part of the framework, of course, is um, core um, health informatics. Uh, that's the bigger part, yes. 
And for those that might not be fully aware of health informatics and what it is, maybe how it differs to just technology in healthcare, tell me a bit more about health informatics and why that's a particular focus. So that's why we have the competency framework because health informatics covers all those domains. Mm. So you have to know about the health side of things. You also have to know about the IT side of things, but you are a conduit between the IT people who build systems and the clinicians who use the systems. So that's why it's important. You have to know health and how health works and what happens to uh, consumers when they go through their health journey. But you also have to have an understanding of the systems and how they are set up and what they do so that you can explain to clinicians how to use them effectively. And the benefit for the clinicians, you have to keep stressing that all the time. It makes their work a lot more efficient and they can also extract data and data turns to information, which turns to knowledge, and it allows them to see the workflow, it allows them to be um, more proficient in what they're doing. So that's the important link. And so it sounds like then you don't need to be a clinician and you don't need to be a software developer or anything. It's, it's you could, it, across that spectrum of healthcare roles and technology one, it's, it's a fit for a lot of different types of people? Absolutely. We, in the CHIA alumni, we have lots of health information managers. Uh, we have doctors, nurses. We have people that have come from an IT background. Uh, we have people that have come from project management side background that have been working on technology projects, but merely uh, project managing them. Uh, so that's why we always say uh, health informatics, we're a very, very, very broad church because we come from all different walks of life. There are um, allied health people. Now we're getting lots more of those in because they're starting to digitize their um, work environment. We have pharmacists. They're, they're definitely on the um, well on the path of digitisation. So yes, we all come from different walks of life, but we all uh, talk the same language around health informatics. And if someone's considering doing cheer, they're not sure if it's the right time or should they wait a bit longer? Uh, What's the right time to do cheer? Uh, the right time to do cheer is when you've got 90 days <laughs> um, that you're going to have no interruptions in your life. So you're not moving house. Got it. You're not going into another job. You're not um, being seconded to a higher position where you've got to do a lot of um, study at night to do your job. You're not going to have a baby. Um, uh, your child's not going to have surgery. Um, all those things. You have to have a stable 90 days because uh, once you register, the clock starts. So the 90 days starts from the minute that you register. So you need to have uh, allocated time each week to study. Uh, some uh, people, doesn't take them long to do their area that they're familiar with. So for me, the health domain didn't take me long at all because I've been living health um, nearly 50 years now. So that, that area, I didn't have to study all that much. But when I got to like IT, um, that's all foreign to me in terms of the granular um, knowledge. So I had to spend a lot of time there. Um, so yeah, you've got to have lots of time to put the work into study. But it's self-paced as well, right? So it's not like you have to attend weekly things. No, it's, no and that's the beauty. It's a credential. So you do the study, yeah. it's self-paced. So if you want to 
do you know two weeks in a full on you can do it or if you only want to do weekends um, but in that 90 days you have two opportunities to sit the exam it's a multi-choice exam um, so we generally recommend people have the first attempt around week 10 because if you are unsuccessful then you've got two weeks to continue to study and have your second attempt uh, but you know most people pass on the first attempt uh, but it's nice to have a contingency plan yeah and it's not just do the test and then that's it is it there's there's a community of people who've done it talk to me about the ongoing nature of cheer correct so uh you now become a cheer alumni and uh uh, Desi, uh, she sends out an alumni newsletter very frequently and it just has up-to-date information around what's happening in the space. Uh, we always have a focus on a resource, a new resource or a new report that might be uh, of interest to health informaticians. Um, so we have that. We have um, activities uh, that are uh, alumni only activities uh, and that's been via uh, webinars, of course, um, due, due to COVID. Um, and then uh, after you pass that examination, that lasts for three years. So because it's a credentialing um, program, it means you have to recertify because you don't just uh, learn it and then that's it, it never changes. And particularly in health informatics, it's just so dynamic, it changes all the time. Um, so every three years you have to submit your journal through uh, CPD points and you get recertified for another three years. So you continually do that um, for the rest of your life. Every three years, um, you submit your CPD journal. Got it, I'm on it already for mine. And so for those that wanna learn more about becoming a chair, what should they do? Uh, they should contact the uh, Australasian Institute of Digital Health. Um, uh, Desi is the uh, program manager for CHIA, but uh, you just need to send an email to certification at digitalhealth.org.au. The other uh, good source is the website of AIDH. And if you just go to careers and then in there it has CHIA and it has its own um, portal in the website and it answers absolutely everything um, that you would want to know about CHIA. I'll introduce yourself in our Yalanji. Nyeyu Kuku Yalanji Bama. Nyeyu Kodba Wawa Kadbel. My uh, name's Luke Briscoe. My Yalanji name's all about embracing my country and culture. And I'm a digital, I suppose, creative. I've started a company called Indigilab about uh, almost 10 years ago now. And so you were one of the first sessions in the plenary today and I saw you speak up on the stage. Talk to me about what you were sharing with the group here at the summit today. What I was talking about in the summit was looking at some of the uh, the key barriers facing Indigenous peoples in the in the I suppose uh, data um, inclusion uptake and trying to get more um, of our youth involved in going to uh, medical services and getting, getting assessments and and what we found not only in Australia but over, overseas is that uh, a lot of our um, youth are actually more comfortable with uh, dealing with avatars and and um, games to actually get their you know, health health and well-being assessments and and that's alarming because that says that uh, there's still racism in the um, in the media in the uh, medical uh, service and and it's systemic and it's you know still a, a barrier for um, indigenous peoples just simply going into a medical service and getting checked up and I heard you mention in the session today you talked about this convergence of tech 
equity of technology and equity in healthcare. Talk to me a bit more about how technology and healthcare play together and how that ties in with equity. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I would say like uh, COVID really triggered a lot of these uh, important policy discussions around uh, health equity. But um, what we found with the Indigenous communities that were living in some of the urban areas is that the lack of access to uh, technology or even just basic Wi-Fi couldn't allow for communities to to ring up family back home to where they're from. So it, so it really caused a disconnection to the country and culture. So that's something that really uh, has sparked my um, investigative interest to understand more about the emergence of tech equity and and health equity and, and how the two need to to be, uh, I suppose, like in terms of a policy aspect thought about. And there'd be many attending today at the event, but also um, checking out the content afterwards who might be creating technology in the healthcare space. Uh, what advice would you give to those that are making technology solutions to ensure they're being inclusive and making sure it is accessible uh, to particularly to Indigenous communities? Yeah, definitely. So when we look at the, um, I suppose, the Indigenous estate, when we're thinking about uh, uh, health and well-being and uh, projects, you know, that might impact community, I think it's important to to understand that um, Indigenous peoples uh, really um, have a rights-based approach when we think about, uh, you know, tech uh, and health equity. So it's important to, to use... Uh, to use mechanisms like the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, um, and then you know some uh, services might have wrap plans, so making sure that they have reconciliation action plans in place, and and really trying to to make sure that the community are engaged in in all aspects, and and uh, even the projects that I developed as an Indigenous cultural practitioner. Um, I still go into communities and develop what's what's called as indigenous cultural indicators. So, so trying to understand, uh, you know, better from uh, community perspectives, what their needs are, what their wants are, to to ensure that there's reciprocity. What do you find are the biggest needs in indigenous communities when it comes to healthcare, but particularly technology and healthcare? Firstly, I would say that. Uh, uh, yeah, definitely our communities are very broad. Uh, you know, you have uh, the city area where uh, a lot of our uh, community people might live, then you have remote areas. So they have very different um, needs. And, and I think that's important for for policymakers and and um, uh, people working in startups to think about as well, because it's really hard to, to go back once you've actually developed something that is, uh, I suppose, like just targeting one group rather than uh, looking at the different um, nation groups because there's over 150 uh, nation groups across Australia and and um, different regions we have our own customs and laws so so yeah the, the starting point should be going in and uh, working with community to develop I suppose like an evaluation framework from their perspectives and lastly what would you hope that people walk away from your session today after hearing the session well, uh, just with the with the understanding that um, Indigenous peoples, particularly in the medical uh, and the health uh, services, haven't been treated well at all, and um, and it's really important to if we're moving forward as a nation and moving forward in the digital um, economy to really think about um, 
uh, Indigenous peoples as as important key stakeholders when it comes to policy planning around digital data sovereignty as you know as our nations. Look, we as a business, we're trying to engage with New South Wales Health and those kinds of organisations. So for us, this is it's a really good uh, information gathering exercise good making great contacts, that kind of thing. Digital health plays a massive part in innovation in healthcare and improving the customer experience, which is what we want. I was just talking to uh, somebody from Syro uh, actually about how um, the, the aged care piece was really interesting. So there's so much work that needs to be done in aged care innovation, especially around dementia and falls and, and just understanding the needs of uh, how to you know make fewer resources go further. Hi, I'm Dr. Annie Banbury. I'm Head of Clinical Research at CoView, the virtual engagement pro platform. Hi, I'm Tracy DeAngelis. I'm an associate partner at Ernst & Young in Queensland. I'm Claire Kelly. I work as a clinical audit coordinator for Wide Bay Hospital and Health Service. And so I'm keen to have a chat with the three of you a bit more about the, uh, the program. So you've got the microphone, so you get to be the lucky one that speaks. So talk to me a bit more about the Women in Digital Health Leadership Program. Yeah, so it's the first year, the inaugural year of the program run by the Australian Institute of Digital Health. Uh, it's based on an American uh, program for women in digital health. Uh, and it's really there to help cultivate and support uh, both existing digital health leaders and those who are emerging um, in digital health um, as, it, as it evolves. So across things like um, your self-awareness, how to team, how to support culture and how to support each other in the in the changing world of digital health. And so you're all in different roles and in different stages perhaps of your careers. Did you find that the group, the cohorts that you went with were just as diverse in terms of experiences and did that help with your experiences through the program? Um, I think it really helped. Certainly when I started the program, I actually felt like I shouldn't be there. There was such uh, depth in the room from other women that I actually did start to think, oh, how on earth did I get into this spot? But as it actually continued, it became clear that we all were there for different reasons. I think digital health is very much um, about diversity and the backgrounds we all come from. So I felt like I was part of my own tribe, which I think I'd been looking for for a while. So. Certainly for me, not being in a identified leadership or hierarchical management role, understanding what leadership is versus what a manager is was quite valuable for me. And so, Annie, you know, from your own experiences and what you've taken before the program and then going through now, what are some of the, the key lessons or things that you've taken from that you might think you'll be able to apply back into your day-to-day -day now? Yeah, there was all different aspects of the program that I really enjoyed. Um, there was the theory side of it in terms of leadership. But I think for me, one of the most important issues was to connect and develop a network of women in digital health. Um, you know, just coming to this event today, I've caught up with so many other people that were on our leadership program. Uh, we went on a journey together. It creates bonds. We get an understanding of different um, organisations, both public and private. We get an understanding of different people's roles, what their problems are, how we can view it from a very strategic viewpoint, how to overcome them. And it was just been fabulous. Yeah. It really have. Were there any points during the program where you're like, 
oh, I thought that was just me. Or, you know, it's like, oh, it's great that there are other people that are, that are facing the same things. Or, oh, I didn't think that that would be uh, something that someone else would experience as well. I think that happened for everybody over and over again. Um, and we were all really open in sharing our stories and our experiences. So you talked about different, you know, people coming in from, you know, different experiences in terms of their leadership experience from, from those who are just starting out to those who are maybe more experienced. But it, that was actually the beautiful thing because um, everybody has different experiences that they were able to share in the room and that um, everybody learned something from it. You're never too young to learn, you're always learning. Uh, and I think that helps build everybody's confidence um, and and builds trust um, as, as a network. So look, I, th I think that happened over and over again. Is there any advice or things that you might share to say men in leadership positions who are interested in trying to um, ensure they're fostering the right um, culture of, you know, promoting women into leadership roles appropriately and doing things that can create a diverse, we can go to each of you about any um, advice you can give so that we can start having these conversations that are more than just people who all agree in the same room about, about the same thing, that something needs to be done. How do we kind of get to that next step where we can bring everyone um, up a little bit more to, to do something impactful? I think it's recognising um, the person, not always the gender. I do yes. think we often focus on the gender. Um, I believe certainly women in certain work environments do find it harder juggling um, family commitments because they do tend to be often the primary care and not always. I think certainly being aware of flexible work environments and flexible ways of working would certainly be quite uh, useful, certainly for myself um, juggling family commitments. Um, it does get a little bit hard to be the primary care provider, but I think that's probably not just a female concern, it would benefit everyone. It's it's an interesting question and I 100% agree, it's, it's about the person and not the gender. So I, I don't have, um, children but still my out of my home commitments are, are important as well um, but so is everybody's and I think that um, really understanding uh, individuals and what they value is really key and the diversity that is in the workplace I think um, that really came through we did a whole piece on diversity and everybody in the room felt very passionately about that um, and and that it, it is broader than gender uh, what we need to understand is that, um, and we did learn a little bit about this in the course, and if you do the course, you'll you'll get to um, experience some of that as well. But, you know, um, gender, um, you know, there's masculine energy and there's feminine energy, and that does bring a different style of, of operating. Um, and I think through culture and environment, uh, it has made us value different things and different styles. Um, and when you actually start to see that and you start to understand that that might be creating biases or, or um, pushing a certain way onto other people, um, then you really start to then stop yourself and go, okay, well, let me actually start to understand that person better and their style and the way that they need to operate. And you can start to work more harmoniously together, but also start to lift them up. Um, and I think really the course gives gave all of us, I think, just extra tools in our tool kit um, which which let us look at things differently but also approach things differently I don't know if others had that experience as well definitely um, I think that the issue for me is going back to that value proposition why do we want more women in leadership digital health is a really broad church 
And we're all passionate when we work in digital health about creating technology and implementing and processing in a way that works for the whole population. And if we don't have a vast representation, a broad representation at the table, bringing their experiences to whatever it is, maybe it's tech development, whether it's around implementation, whether it's around leadership. If we don't have that broad church, then we're not really um, optimizing everything that we've got as a nation. And so that's what I would say, as, um, as was said, there's, you know, we were talked about feminine and masculine energies. You know, you can have some male leaders that have more feminine energy. Similarly, you can have more um, female leaders that have more masculine energy. But it's about harnessing both of those and creating an atmosphere where your teams flourish. And I think that's what I took most. Some great takeaways there. Lastly, then, for each of you, um, any advice or um, final thoughts, things to share with perhaps women who might be coming up through their careers at whatever stage they're at, looking to um, uh, uh, have an impactful role within a leadership position or even just within a career that they're, they're passionate about? I would say put your application in. It certainly uh, gave me an interesting way to reflect. Um, it gave me a safe environment to have those reflections. Often it can feel a little bit confronting getting feedback or having a mentoring arrangement, whereas in the Women in Digital Health program, it was a safe space um, to share and to grow together. And I thought um, having that vulnerability as a collective group and that trust was certainly very valuable. And I certainly took away a lot that I will carry forward into whatever I go forward to do. I think uh, everybody has become so busy and there's so much stuff coming at them, you know, uh, from so many different um, angles. No one, I find is taking time for themselves anymore and I think this is a fantastic opportunity to actually stop and reflect as you've said um, and like we've said it doesn't matter what stage of your career you're at um, you'll you'll either get refreshes or you'll get different perspectives from others um, it's it's all valuable and it's important that you actually take time out for yourself to think about where you are and who you are and what you want out of your career in digital health and as a leader and what you're bringing to others so I think um, yeah 100% definitely invest in yourself yeah I would say you know put your application in it's for everyone at all their different stages whatever role you do within digital health it's about finding your tribe and really feeling belonging to somewhere. My name is Khalid. Uh, I'm the Director of Leadership and Policy with the Institute of Digital Health. And Leadership and Policy, talk to me about what's on your radar at the moment at the Institute. So uh, at the moment, we're working to uh, build and refine a strategy uh, for leadership and policy that really provides scope around what the priorities are for the Institute, what we'd like to produce policy outputs on, um, what we'd like to advocate to government on, um, and it really just assists us in uh, prioritising what is a, a very long list of things that we could be working on. Uh, so the strategy is called Shifting the Dial, and we released that I think last month. Um, Shifting the Dial has got three pillars. So the first one is changing the business models of healthcare. The second one is advancing the digital health workforce. And the third one is building trust and confidence in health and data. Under each of those pillars, uh, uh, we've got three focus areas that we would hope uh, activity in would shift the dial towards changing the business models of healthcare and advancing you know, Australia's transition to a digital health future. 
Uh, so each of those pillars plays a very strategic role in an overarching vision that we have. Uh, that is for a, a future where uh, we no longer have to say digital health, it is just health, yeah. right? And talk to me about those three pillars in particular, you know, we've heard them come up at different points and they, they resonate when you talk to me about them just then they each of those resonate with me in different ways. But how did we arrive at those three in particular um, to, to, to shift it up? Yeah. So we held a series of consultations uh, amongst the constituency units of, of the Institute. So that's our fellows, uh, that's our associate fellows, members, organizational members, uh, and even experts across the sector. Right. Um, so we sat down uh, and held workshops and consultations and spoke to members and said, if we wanted to achieve X in 15 years from now, and that is a fully digitally enabled healthcare sector, what do we need to do to shift the dial so that we can start making movement towards that, 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 that goal? Um, and business models came up quite frequently. Business models goes to, you know, the way on the one hand, the way that we uh, fund and structure the health system. And on the other hand, uh, how we deliver healthcare to patients in a manner that is patient centric and patient conscious or consumer conscious. Uh, the, the second pillar, advancing the digital health workforce, uh, I think really speaks for itself. You know, we've got a, a very strained healthcare workforce at the moment um, and digital enablement um, in, in many case studies has proven to increase efficiencies, productivity and ease the pressure on the workforce. Um, I think that, you know, government would be very receptive to hearing about the sorts of uh, investments we could make in digital to ease the pressure that they have on them, right? So uh, I think it's a target of, or not a target, modelling shows that we're going to need an additional 85,000 healthcare workers over the next two years. If you look at what the government's done by increasing the migration cap uh, to, to ease the workforce pressures across the country, by 35,000 people per year, that's across all industries. That's not just healthcare. So we're going to have to either retrain, reskill, recruit from within the country, um, or we're going to have to find another solution because there just physically isn't enough human beings to do the job. Um, that's where digital comes in, and that's the case we're trying to make. Um, and then the third one uh, is around uh, building trust and confidence in health and data, and that really goes to um, the, the, the you know the trust that people place in the in the health system. On, on the one side and then on the other side in the data that is collected and how it's used. So that's the interoperability piece, um, that is the connected care piece, uh, and that is the, the rights of the patients to own their own data that they are handing over to clinicians. And so one would expect then as a member of AIDH that a lot of the content and the events and the activities that are happening on a day-to-day -day and a month-to-month -month within the Institute, then will be kind of guided going towards all of these these principles and, and aligned with the strategy, right? Is that what we'd expect? Correct, absolutely. I mean, and we're seeing that in, in, in today's summit and today and tomorrow's summit, um, you know, it's really organized around those three pillars um, so that a lot of the content that we're disseminating and, and, and information that we're learning um, really goes towards shifting the dial on digital health in Australia. Yeah. Um, so, so it's not just a sort of a, a siloed uh, strategy. It's really about uh, guiding our policy, advocacy and engagement activities. And this is obviously an engagement activity. Um, so, uh, and on the point of engagement, we've set up a complementary uh, structure to engage professionals and experts across the sector. And there are expert advisory groups. So we've got an expert advisory group on changing the business models of healthcare, EAGs for short, on advancing the digital health workforce and likewise for the third pillar an expert advisory group on building trust and confidence in health and data 
Um, and the point really is to, uh, so, so one of the things that we did with the EAGs was look beyond the fellowship and look beyond the membership of the AIDH and really draw on the expertise across the health uh, uh, business, technology, digital sectors. Um, so, yeah. And then lastly then, say we shift the dial, say it all works and, mm. it's, uh, and, and it's done, is that then when we start calling it health instead of digital health, what does that future look like? I, I, I think so, yes, yes. Uh, what does the future look like? Um, well, uh, I don't know, I hope it includes a big bonus for me. No, I'm <laughs> kidding, I'm kidding. <laughs> Um, but uh, no, look, I think I think you're, you're spot on. It's when uh, digital becomes so ingrained in the enablement and the delivery of healthcare that it is just business as usual. And that's what we are working towards. And I think that that is very consistent, um, you know, uh, with consumer expectations, particularly after the pandemic, where we saw the rapid, uh, you know, uptake and scaling of digital health technologies to enable the delivery and the accessibility of healthcare across the country. Uh, I think once you uh, give the consumers that sort of a uh, access accessibility to the healthcare system, um, the expectation is that it stays. Uh, so it's, I think it's vitally important that we continue our advocacy efforts in, uh, you know, calling for a national virtual care strategy, one that really doesn't just expect the states to coordinate amongst themselves, but actually provides leadership at a federal level and provides incentive for, for a federalized, harmonious approach across the states, which is really integral in the, you know, the, 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 the data piece, the interoperability piece. If the systems aren't harmonious and don't talk to one another, you know, there's no point in having just interoperability in one jurisdiction unless you can transfer it across the jurisdictions. So the, 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 the strategy really, um, I think, uh, has been in development for about five or six months now. And we've, you know, the, what we've released is very high level um, for a reason, um, but it has had a lot of thought go into it. Um, I'm pretty pleased with where we've landed. We've got some great experts coming on board. Mary Foley um, is going to chair our uh, business models uh, group. Uh, we've got Mark Cormack, who's to be the former head of uh, Health Workforce Australia, uh, who's going to chair the workforce group. Um, and of course, Professor Trish Williams, who is phenomenal, um, uh, is going to chair the health and data, uh, the, sorry, yeah, the health trust and confidence expert advisory group. Well, I think the point that they made was that the future of health is digital. So we're in a transition phase where digital is a focus, yet we're moving towards it being one of those things that happens in health. You know, how do we build that capability? How do we keep everyone and make everyone interested in what digital health can and is doing at the moment? So there's a real melting pot and a collective vibe here going on today that um, yeah, I haven't seen that uh, I haven't seen that before for a while. My name is Dr. Ben Bravery. Uh, I'm a junior doctor here in New South Wales, uh, studying psychiatry. But my pathway to medicine was a bit unusual. I got bowel cancer when I was 28. Uh, came out of nowhere, no family history had all the symptoms, got really sick, had a couple of years of treatment, got spat out at the end, tried to go back to my old work, which was uh, zoology, conservation biology, so something quite different. Realized I had to get back into health in a big way. So I retrained as a doctor and here I am. Unreal. So, um, wow, you could write a book about that. But the, <laughs> I have. <laughs> <laughs> and so talk to us about what, so you were up on stage here at the, yeah. the summit telling that story. Talk to me a bit more about, about that and how that resonated with the people here. Yeah, so this is a digital health conference, right? The theme is trust. 
um, mistrust. Um, I've got a lot to say on that because having been a patient first and now uh, a medical student and then a junior doctor, I've felt key points of that journey, a lot of mistrust. Trust in my own body, trust in the health system, trust in my doctors and nurses. And then when studying, trust in my educators, uh, that the colleagues and lecturers had my back. As a doctor, uh, I've got some issues with trusting the system to protect me, trusting that I can give the kind of care I want to give to patients. This is a high-tech conference, but a lot of the stuff I talked about was quite low-tech, right? It's sitting at the bedside, it's connecting with people. And technology can play a role in that for sure, but there's a lot of low-hanging fruit first that we've got to address. And I, I find that often with you know conversations about technology where it doesn't quite hit the mark it's not so much about the technology itself it's about you know the meaning that it has for patients or the impact it has and the the the, the human element and how those embrace it so yeah i can see how those are really important issues that, mm. that would resonate with this this crowd here yeah and and technology of course can uh help the doctor patient relationship the nurse patient relationship become stronger more two-way definitely technology has a role to play there but it has to be grounded in human principles right kindness, compassion, respect, which sometimes in healthcare is lacking. Yes. And the talk to me more about building trust and for those working within the healthcare space, you know, there's a lot to, to become a, uh, to go through the ropes, become a clinician, become a doctor or a nurse or uh, work within healthcare. You know, a lot of it's based on getting the right grades and, mm. you know, passing bars. And then you're out there dealing with humans. They're two quite different, like, vehicles to drive, right? And so that's that's something that you've also probably come across in, you know, doing those different stages and going through as a medical, uh, as a training as a doctor, and then also being a patient at the same time. Is that about right? A hundred percent. So you've hit, <coughs> you've, sorry, you've hit the nail on the head. Uh, you are taught very factual things as a doctor. It's old school, actually. It's like textbooks and anatomy and physiology and pharmacology. And all that's really, really important to the job. What's not taught so much is the kind of human stuff that you've just mentioned. Because it's almost like those skills aren't valued. They're not rewarded. They're definitely not incentivized. People are selected to get into medical school on grades and they're important and a particular type of test which is assessing a particular part of the brain but they're not the full story. That would be fine if at medical school we taught all this what they call soft skills, I call hard skills, uh, communication, leadership, empathy, uh, interpersonal you know, dynamics but they don't. They expect because you're a person that you can do it. But what we know about medical training, and this goes for your time at university and then your time on the job, is those things erode as your factual knowledge grows. So I'm all about protecting that and actually rewarding that. We need to do that at the medical education level and then in the health system. I can see that resonate with a lot of people here today and that makes a lot of sense. That's a, that's a hard one to crack though and actually mm. see that change. Cause like you say, you know, when you say soft skills, people will smile and go, oh yeah, so that's, you know, something mm. that we need to do, but let's get back to, you know, the, the real part about it. Mm. How do we actually get to a point where this is valued, this is part of the culture and this is, you know, we see some change in the system to, to actually make a more meaningful impact for patients. So I think the first part, having thought about this quite a bit while writing the book, the first part is opening up the doors of medical school, which is a little controversial. I actually think we need people from a range of uh, backgrounds, a range of lived experiences. They might not have the best anatomy score, but they might have grown up in an area that struggled to have a GP, for example, or their mum had diabetes, or their father died from cancer at a young age. We know that most people that, get to, that go to medical school are healthy. They're from healthy families in rich postcodes with private insurance. That's not 
the Australian healthcare system. That's just one part of it. So I'd like to diversify who we let into med school. And then once we're in there, we need to include patients in the education. This can be low tech or high tech. The low tech solution is you just physically bring them to medical school. We don't have patients giving lectures very often. We hear from doctors about illness. We don't hear from the ill about illness. And I think that's a real oversight because when you hear someone talk about their diabetes or how they manage their cystic fibrosis or how they have to save up to buy the medication to manage their asthma, you get a whole new understanding of the disease. And it's a, it's a story that you take inside and then you can anchor the textbook knowledge, the anatomy, the physiology. And then I think once you're in the system, we've got to incentivize these kinds of skills. One way you could do that is actually empowering patients to have greater feedback. So at the moment, when you leave public hospital, you get a paper survey. You may get it, you may or may not get it. It's very old school. You go home, you tick the boxes, and then you may or may not send it in. What if we totally rethought the real-time feedback? So when I order Uber, for example, I know the bike they're on, I know who it is, I know their star rating, I know what they're carrying, I know how long it took for them to do the last order, and I know how long it's going to take to get to me. You walk into hospital, you know nothing virtually. You just wait and no one around you seems to know. If we really empowered patients, and you could do this digitally, uh, to create little navigator systems or see where they are in the big picture, or even like a, when you know when you Google a cafe you wanna visit and Google tells you when it's busiest, you could know in your ward when the doctor normally rounds. So like they normally round between three and five or the ward's busy at this time. There's so much we could do with tech just to restore the information balance and empower patients to feed back on their system. That's such an interesting one too, you know, you think about as from a patient's point of view, wouldn't it be convenient if you knew even in an outpatient setting, for example, you know, if the doctor's running behind or would they come in? But you know, the, the old school method of, of healthcare is, you know, the, the clinician centric, well, we'll make sure the patients are there ready for when the clinician's ready, but we're at a point now where we really need to flip that and, and be for when the patient's ready and, and respond that way too. That's built on an old power model. I think a lot of the discussions we have now as a society outside of health, is about addressing power imbalances and restoring equity. And the old idea that the clinician's time is more important than the 50 people in the waiting room, that doesn't hold anymore. Society has moved on. The paternalism and the patriarchy in medicine is going down over time, but we have to embrace that. Firing up a lot of people here today and really excited. <laughs> I think it's, it's, it's so on point with where we're at right now today. Any other final thoughts or things you would hope people who are attending this conference today who either might have seen yours or seen other sessions today, what they might walk away with and um, uh, perhaps do with that information from here? I think the, the most striking thing for me is there will be lots of technology and it has to play an important role but it has to be built on human principles. And you've always got to remember, I know this is really simple and for the audience I'm preaching to the converted, but the end user. How will this thing actually play out in the human space full of the emotion and the anxiety and the uncertainty and the frustration and the doctor who's hungry because they skipped lunch and the patient who's annoyed because they waited two hours. You can design all the lovely solutions you want, but it's the actual interface of delivery that matters. And there's lots of system fixes that we can do to improve that, to make it welcoming of tech. Dan McInerney, I'm a partner at PwC. Uh, my passion and purpose, I would say, is healthcare. Uh, probably got that passion from my personal experiences in all honesty, Peter. Uh, my mum had comorbidity. I had to deal with illness, sickness, GP, specialist hospitals. I didn't have the IQ for being a doctor and I didn't like blood. Mm. So I did hospital administration. And then I've traversed a career from university, public sector, state, federal, and now I'm a partner at PwC.
So that's a little bit about me. Amazing. And bringing that passion front and center too. So it's great to see you here at the sessions uh, at the AIDH and Health New South Wales Digital Health Summit. But what brings you here to this event? What's been the focus and what have you been up to the last couple of days? Well, it's been a great event to see people, to hear and listen, learn, create new networks, listen to conversations. For me, workforce is very important. And being a consultant in a management consulting organization, you know, we play a role in some of the change that's occurring in the healthcare system. And so from my perspective, I wanted to, you know, meet people, understand what was happening around the workforce agenda, and then really understand and, and think and learn and apply, well, what can I do from a management consulting perspective to really move and bring our industry forward as part of, a, you know, addressing some of the skill shortages, but importantly, how do I make sure that we can think about what do we need to do with our own people who are coming into the sector and trying to help solve problems? Yeah. So that's what I've been thinking about. That's a good point around, you know, from a management consulting point of view, where often it's quite, you know, by definition, quite big picture and where the thing is heading. Some of these challenges around workforce are very practical day to day and we need some action now. How do you kind of find that balance between giving the big picture and still giving something meaningful to the healthcare workers on the front line or the, the hospital systems that are looking to fill gaps and, and the, the challenges that we face every day? Great question. It's a question that, you know, we have to answer every day in terms of what we do as a business. And, you know, if I put it down to some simple things, coming from the public service into consulting, or what I want to do and what we should do as management consultants is just solve problems. And how do we practically provide capability and service to do that. But importantly, how do we contribute differently as a management consultant? So absolutely, yes, we're well known for strategy, vision, uh, program planning, but what we realize now with the momentum this gender has, that we have to diversify our own businesses and really provide really practical, common sense type of skills and services back into the sector. We see virtual care being such a key topic right now about how we want to you know, digitally enable the way in which we interact. So we have to look at our workforce and say, what do we need to adjust and how do we solve those type of problems? And did you find that you know, in the sessions today that those were the types of themes that were coming out from the speakers and the attendees? Yeah, I'm finding what would I say a plethora of different agendas and themes and topics that you know clients and people in the healthcare sector are looking at. You're looking at solution architecture, data scientists, data engineers, because we were sitting on so much data. How do we free that up? How do we turn that into real-time insights and make immediate action around policy on protocol, but importantly, put that in the front of the consumer, the patient, so they get a real outcome straight away. So I'm very excited by the conversations that we're having here, and, and it's gonna allow me to go back with my organization and say, okay, are we looking at our workforce plan in the right way? And importantly, how do we provide the experiences to our staff that wanna go out and do this? How do we upskill those people who might come out of universities and we put them through our normal 101 consulting courses, but how do we use something like the CHIA or other different career pathways and L&D to provide that extra oomph, if I can call it that, of being a healthcare consultant? I mean, we've got this, the, the the challenging, you know, increasing in demand of healthcare, decreasing amount of clinicians that are, you know, staying in the system. There's the pressure is on, on workforce. So yeah, it's the, the time's now to, to really address some of these issues. So um, absolutely. What, um, any other points that excite you about the area of 
workforce coming from this event today? I think what's important when we think about solutions around workforce, we, we, have, we have to come at, at, at a system level, but also every actor in that system. And a lot of the conversation has been most definitely and most importantly focused in around, you know, health and hospitals, the people in the system. But there are career pathways where, you know, we have, we have a say or we have a right to be able to contribute and upskill. So we're seeing a lot of clinicians, they might be, um, burning out or they might be wanting to try another industry but still be within healthcare but not at the front line. So how do we actually help them upskill and allow them to grow and develop their own skills? So coming over to consulting as an example, we can provide them with an array of experiences, L&D opportunities, which really you know build on what they've already got, which is some amazing experiences, most definitely skill sets and expertise, but give them a different lens of how to solve problems. And that's probably what I'm really excited about. I think what has come to the forefront today was this desire from all of those partners to actually work together, which has been really interesting, just acknowledging that, you know, there's some major problems in the system that need to be addressed and it's going to take a group effort to, to come together to hopefully try and fix them or at least come up with some solutions to move some of the way towards fixing them. I think what I've taken so far is about the need to work together, the need to produce systems that work well with other systems and talk to each other, interoperability, but also cooperation as well and partnerships, relationships, really important. George Margellis, I'm the currently the chair of the Aged Care Industry Information Technology Council, but been a member of Heiser and AIDH for probably over 20 years now. Uh, medical practitioner by background, actively involved in technology for probably the last 20 years including a number of uh, international roles with uh, large multinationals. Good on you. And so what brings you to the event today? Well, you know, uh, this, I've been attending the HIC or their equivalent events now for the last 20 years, and they've always been a great opportunity to you know, see new things, meet new people, hear new ideas. Um, in particular, today I was presenting a workshop specifically looking at the role of technology in the aged care workforce. So as we all know, the aged care workforce is under severe challenge. Um, the, recommendations that it's 50% uh, under supply at the moment and uh, that the, the attrition rate is, being, is astronomical. So what do we do to make sure people come into aged care to deliver high quality care requirement that's required by their sector? And the key I think is um, enabling them through technology, providing them with solutions that enable them to do focus on, on their key job around providing care and automate those tasks that can be automated and remove some of those tasks that are currently stopping them from delivering high quality care. And so is that what a lot of the conversation today was about, particularly that, that workforce piece and the technology in aged care? Yeah, so we looked at a couple of things. I mean, there's, there's challenges both at the care delivery workforce, but we're also significant challenges in the technology delivery workforce within aged care. So you know, again, in a very competitive environment where technology skills are being asked for by multiple parts of the economy, um, the, there's a huge challenge for aged care providers to attract technology staff and keep them. So we looked at you know, what we can do to improve that. And often that comes down to delivering a, a, a purpose as, as long as, as well as delivering technology. So you know, some of the organizations, Hammond Care was a great example. They deliver a high quality dementia service across the country. And often technologists will sort of see that as a value add. So 
whilst they're delivering technology, their organisation is doing a great job delivering dementia care and most people have someone in their family who has dementia, so they better understand that. Um, so that from the from technology perspective, that's important. But then just attracting people to deliver care because, again, very competitive environment. Our hospitals are short-staffed. Our primary care practices are short-staffed. How do we attract the right people into aged care? And, and often that comes down to enabling them to do what they want to do, what they're passionate about, which is delivering high quality care and removing a lot of those administrative tasks, which can be automated through technology, but also facilitating that, that delivery of care, providing them with data around the people that they're treating to enable them to provide the right care at the right time, at the right place. And I think that's one of the key areas where you know, mobile technologies have enabled home care services to deliver care now that previously could only be delivered in a, in a hospital. How do we do that in people's homes? You know, this is a topic that you've been banging on for quite a while, George, and you know, we've seen it within health and age for, for, for a long period of time. You talked about a couple of examples of, you know, of seeing it in action. Are we starting to see some of this actually take shape or are we still, you know, doing the should have, could have type conversations? Look, we, we are starting to see more and more of it take, play, take shape and we are starting to see the utilization of consumer tools, classic examples, smart TVs, you know, Google or Alexa home assistants, um, Wi-Fi enabled devices in people's homes that we didn't have access to 20 years ago. Or if we did have access to, they were expensive and they were complicated. And now you, know, you can buy online Wi-Fi enabled light bulbs so that people can you know, automate the lights coming on in the middle of the night when they go to the bathroom, avoids them from falling over in the dark. Um, they can turn on their kettles in the kitchen remotely so they can, you know, monitor that to see how many times they're having a cup of tea, which is an indicator of what they're doing. Or companies like UMPS, uh, a local Australian company, which just measures the usage of PowerPoints in a house, gives us enough information to understand whether people's activities of daily living have increased or decreased. Um, all those sort of easy technologies, which 10 years ago were research lab technologies, which required a dedicated electrical engineer. You can now buy at you know, Harvey Norman or, uh, or Officeworks. So how we utilize some of those technologies, I think that's really one of the exciting areas we now where we take standard consumer technology available off the shelf and develop clinical solutions around it is a, is a, a big change in the sector. And lastly, anything that's inspired you from this event or anything you'll be taking away from these last couple of days with um, all these industry peers? Look, I think you know, the focus on building trust. So how do we explain what we're doing in such a way that consumers, be they old pe older people in their home or their families who play a large role, better understand that by using these technologies, yes, we may be complicating things, we may be adding some costs, but we're building a trust model where they understand that the, all that information builds up together to provide us with a better view of that individual and how we can help them more. For more content and community about technology and healthcare, visit talkinghealthtech.com.